Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, January 2, 2023, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Iro, welcoming you to a fishy 2023. We are officially kicking off our season <laughs> <Officially>. three. <laughs> We're going to have some fun. We're going to take a look back at season two. We're going to be hitting some highlights, some behind the scenes. And also take a look forward of what's to come because we have a great lineup of fish and we're really excited to continue this journey with all of you learning about all the fish. So first off, we've really covered some neat fish. And one of the fish that always brings a chuckle to my throat is the pirate perch. And we're going to play a clip from that one. That was actually uh, the first fish we covered in season two. This is a, shall I say, a really interesting fish when it comes to a particular part of their anatomy. It's actually located in a really odd place on their body, and I'll just come out and say it. Their anus is located right in the throat area. Jugular anus. I've just been waiting to say it. That's the one thing that everyone remembers about this fish. Uh, And even, you know, just it's this easy one that if you're trying to remember for your lab class or you're looking in jars, you know, it's it's the only one that has just this urogenital pore right on its throat. And the scientific name is super easy to remember. It's Afraidaderis say anus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. I, I agree with those thoughts. <laughs> I do too. And I'm never going to be able to look at Boticelli's The Birth of Venus in the same way again after having you relate her to this fish guy. That was so funny. Another one that was a big learning moment for me was the Big Mouth Buffalo episode and how they're documented as being well over 100 years old and showing no signs of aging at that age. Um, I think that was just really, really amazing. So we're going to play a clip from that. We discovered, and this was a project led by Derek Saar, who was a master's student at NDSU at the time at North Dakota State University. He looked at three different physiological systems in Big Mouth Buffalo and see how they changed with age. And what we found is that their immune function and stress response incre- like got better with age, even at 100 years old. And their telomeres at the end segments of the DNA showed no change with age, even though in a lot of vertebrate species, the telomeres are found to shorten with age and maybe a sign of senescence. So basically what we found is even as big mouth buffalo approach 100 years in age, they're still advancing into their prime. The fountain of youth, it ain't down in Florida. It's in the genes of the big mouth buffalo. That's crazy. Like, do we know how old they can get? Like, I'm, I'm so impressed by this fish, and that's just, it, it, it's pretty amazing. That's an amazing fact. Yeah, we don't know how long they can live, and we don't know if they reach, like, a plateau at the end, and then they rapidly senesce, or if it's a gradual senescence at a certain point. But, yes, at 100 years of age, though, we're, we found basically no evidence of senescence. That made me just want to like really get to know that fish and do everything we could to like raise awareness about it. I don't know, guy, if that was as shocking to you, but man, I was just so impressed with that. Yeah, the fact that their telomeres don't degrade at all is really surprising. I mean, as uh, Alec was saying there, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to see, and I wish I'd asked him about it at the time, if anyone's worked towards keeping this fish in captivity to see how long it could actually go. Because they say, like, they really don't know. I mean, they're catching these old fish from the wild, but y- y- you never know. Because c- you-, you can't imagine that anything can last forever. 
And in terms of getting the word out, yeah, I mean, the other guy, Tyler Winter, actually, he runs a whole Instagram account trying to promote these rough fish and suckers in particular. And he reached out to us after the Sicklefin Red Horse episode talking about how much he loved it and how enthusiastic he was. I mean, we've been thinking about doing a Buffalo episode and mm-hmm. it finally just happened that, you know, we had a slot to fill. Enthusiastic guest. We had an yep. enthusiastic guest. We hadn't done suckers in a little while. And so we reached out to him and it all just came together. And that was one of my favorite episodes of the year, I think. So I'm happy for it. And the crazy thing, too, is that they're often confused with non-native carp and, you know, dispatched like, you know, as a kind of a trash fish in a lot of ways. Um, So I just wanted to kind of remind people how to tell that buffalo species apart from other fish. They got that dull black eye, you know, like a doll's eyes. Yeah, they got like a really interesting eye, almost looks like a seal eye or something. But carp have barbels and buffalo do not, and they also have a light area under their eyes. So I thought that was worth a good reminder. So if you're going to go bow fishing for carp, make sure you're not shooting those 100-year-old buffalo fish. Okay, so lampreys are another really neat group of ancient fishes, and we've covered a a number of different species now. We have one more on the list for this coming year, Um, but we're going to play a clip just describing this this really neat fish. They're all kind of similar, but they're they're quite something to look at. Well, the sea lampreys are alien-looking. They look like a uh, snake with a grotesque alien mouth uh, ringed with sharp teeth and a, <laughs> a sharp tongue in the middle that acts like a drill. The teeth anchor uh, in the side of a fish. The mouth is a suction cup. It's a very strong suction cup. The tongue in the middle flicks out and drills its way through the scales and skin of the fish so the lamprey can on the fish's blood and body fluids. They are pretty nasty looking creatures, but they have their role in the ecosystem and they have a very uh, negative role in the ecosystems that they've invaded. Mark Gaydon is our guest. You got anything to add on that one, Guy? Well, not much. I mean, we, we've done several episodes on lampreys now. I, I think a lot of the people who listen to the show are probably familiar with lampreys and are glad that we've been covering them. You know, taxonomically speaking, they, they've been overrepresented. <laughs> In terms of like the number of species that exist out there, but they are cool. And I I hope, and this is maybe a little bit of foreshadowing for what we're trying to do next year. The other jawless fishes out there are the hagfishes. And we haven't talked about them yet. Granted, they are a marine species and we're funded by Fish and Wildlife Service, which mainly does freshwater species, but we've done marine species in the forest. So I'm hoping that we get a chance to, you know, not only do the lampreys, but also talk about hagfishes at some point in the future, because those are really neat too. I think we've kind of overcovered the lamprey to some degree because there's been a really good marketing strategy where they're not native in the Great Lakes to kind of cast them in the light, that negative light. But they really are on the East Coast where they're native and in the Pacific Northwest. We heard from some guests out there in terms of the kind of tribal importance of these fish. They are complex. So I think that's why we've covered them a lot. And I, I really enjoy them. Down here in Georgia, we've actually recently had kind of an invasion of these fish called weather loaches mm. from, from Asia. Jeez, I've had those and before in my fish tank. Yeah. So, so you know what they look like. They're kind of yeah, long, they little slender. Yeah. yeah. Cool. But uh, we've had people down here who report like, oh, we think that we're seeing weather loaches. But it turns out it's just chestnut lampreys up spawning mm. and stuff because they got that similar color, that similar body shape to them. Yeah. Different so, mouth, though. Yeah. You know, if you're, yeah, if you're to, I mean, they're hard to just go out and grab and look for the mouth. But yeah, no, you're, you're right. Yeah. And then we have the Pacific football fish. I just, I really love that episode. Our guests were very enthusiastic and we wanted to kind of pitch this one out as just another really cool fish that we learned about and they've got a really cool look to them. All right. So the Pacific football fish, like most deep sea angler fishes, some might describe it as horrific or terrifying. (laughs) 
because basically it's a giant mouth. If you think about it, um, it's a big globulose thing. It's basically, it's very round, uh, looks kind of like a large tar ball because it's pitch black. Uh, and it has a very big mouth, uh, with pretty sharp teeth. I don't think it's horrifying or terrifying. I think it's a beautiful fish. It's fantastic <laughs> and remarkable. Um, it has on the top of its head, a modified first dorsal fin spine that is called the Elysium. And at the tip of that is a bioluminescent organ called the Esca. And if you can just think of it, it's like a, a fishing rod essentially is what it would look like. Uh, at the tip of that Esca though, it has all these extra appendages that come off all these little kind of tentacles that come off of it too. And they all have silvery tips. So overall you got a really big black blob that has a fishing rod off of it and a big mouth. That's kind of how I would explain it. It's really hard to describe. What do you think, Ben? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that's pretty much how I put it. You know, just a, a giant swimming head. Nice. Is that, is that you laughing on the track or laughing here in both. response to the track? I was laughing at the, the same stuff I laughed at before, I guess. <laughs> I'm very predictable. <laughs> I wonder if I asked about whether it's a like a symbiosis with a bacteria in the ESCA there. I think you that did. Feels like, I feel, that feels like, uh, obviously, I didn't learn it well enough. I'll have to go back and re-listen because I yep. assume it probably is, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, I'll have to go back and check it out. We're going to play a couple more clips about fish we heard about, and they're kind of funny to me because just the way they're um, delivered by our guests. But even the smallest and drabbest fish have value. And yeah, we're just trying to really get folks to think about the fish and all the fish, no matter how seemingly insignificant they are. You know, there's nothing really extraordinarily striking about these little fish. They look pretty ordinary. You know, to your average citizen, they're pretty small, you know, a little bit bigger than your finger got a little color but most people ask like where are they you know kind of what they come in expecting to see something really colorful and jumping off the page and they're like oh okay topeka shiner and that was radrick may from our neo show hatcher he had some really great stories i just really liked his descriptions but yeah neat little kind of drab fish that we covered a couple weeks after we recorded that i uh Went up to the Neo Show Hatch. We got to see everything that they had up there, including some of the Topeka Shiners. But Ooh. Rod Rod wasn't there. Oh. But I, I, I talked to the person up front, talked to him about that. They gave me a cool Fishes of Missouri thing. So I got to figure out which ones were the Cardinal Shiners, which ones were the Dusky Stripe Shiners, which ones were the Bleeding Shiners and stuff like that. That's but cool. uh, got to see some in Aquarius, some of those Topeka Shiners. It was cool. Yeah, that'd be cool to do like kind of a hatchery tour around the U.S. I know we're kind of doing that online, but just actually visiting some of these places would be pretty interesting. They also gave me a copy of a book called Russell the Muscle, which <sighs> is about, you know, freshwater mussels, which are really cool. And we might end up doing an episode on them later next year, too. So yeah. keep an eye out for that one. And you're out. Awesome. They're just a, a little brown fish. I mean, I, 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 Warren's right. They're not as colorful as a lot of the daughters that we have. I really love to see the look on someone's face when they see one live for the first time. They're kind of like, is that it? Really? That's it? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. And that was the snail darter. I was actually just recently down at a meeting of the Southeastern Fishes Council and got a chance to actually meet a lot of people who we've had on the show so far this year. We had Michael Wolf was down there. He did Bluehead Chubs. We had Pat Rakes and Peggy Shute who were on here for the Smoky Mad Toms. 
Brian Zimmerman from Long Year Sunfish. So a whole lots of people who I'd met, you know, over the screen, but got to see them in the real life. But actually at that same conference, there was a, it was a presentation, but it's going to be a paper that suggests that, you know, the snail dart might not even actually be its own species. So that's something like looking forward that this might be considered synonymous with stargazing darter, which was described before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was showing just like hardly any genetic separation from it at all. So normally these people, when they do the genetic work, end up finding more than what's expected and splitting species out. But this might be uh, an example of assumption within a single species. So. But that does not say anything about, you know, all the good work that was done to conserve these species and these populations, if that ends up being what it becomes. Yet another good reason to keep up with all the fish. Things are always changing. We're always learning more. Since expanding beyond Alaska in season one, I really started gaining an appreciation for those fish that kind of ride below that sport fish status and that are less appreciated and sometimes these fish are even confused with non-native fish. We've mentioned buffalo, but I think bowfin are also a, a pretty special underappreciated fish in a lot of circles. So we wanted to hear a clip from Tony Brady's episode on bowfin. I can tell you about my very first bowfin I ever caught. And I've never seen one before. I grew up in North Carolina. And my dad and I took a guided fishing trip to South Carolina, the Santee Cooper Lakes, Lake Marion and Lake Moultrie. And we're out there catfishing, and I hook into a fish, and it's a good fight. Get it up to the boat, and the guide grabs the line, pulls it up, and sees it's a bowfin. Reaches down and grabs a bully stick, cracks it over the top of the head, and cuts the line. And I'm like, that's odd. You know, I didn't even get a chance to look at the fish I caught. And uh, he talked about, you know, of course, just the mentality was, there are trash fish. They got a mouthful of teeth. I don't want to mess with them. They steal my bait, this type of an attitude. And now Tony's down in Florida raising bowfin at our Wallaca National Fish Hatchery. But it's kind of interesting to see that perspective about these fish that are native species and actually pretty neat. I, I feel like bowfin are turning a corner in terms of people's appreciating them for sport fish. They're still not a super palatable fish, as far as I can tell from people who've tried eating them but i'm seeing more and more people going out and intending to catch them because they are a good fighter after we recorded that i was fishing the suwannee river sill down here and i I caught a couple i had one nearly an alligator got which was unfortunate i had to break it off because the alligator was coming for it unlike Mm. that guide who's intentionally just cracking over the head i'm like well i don't want to i don't want to get eaten by a gator so better just bust it off real quick probably now's the better time to mention that as of just recently, they've described a whole new species of bowfin. So we thought it was a, a fish that was the single species within this whole order of meaformes. Yeah. yeah, now it's two. Amia calva is still down in the southeast, but the ones out in the Midwest, further north, Mississippi River, they're calling this one Amia acelicata. And now acelicata is referring to the eye spot near the tail fin on the male bowfins. And this was a formerly described species. These authors didn't come up with this name. It was uh, previously described, considered synonymous, and now it's being considered unsynonymous again as its own thing. Okay. We've had some pretty passionate guests who've helped raise awareness about appreciating those underappreciated species. We had Josh Dolan on, who at the time of the recording held the current fallfish record. So we're going to hear from him. I think he still does. Does he? I think he caught another one, right? And it was even bigger? I think it was bigger in length, but... 
he caught that during the spawning season, so it was probably full of eggs. Yep. And so I think he's planning to go back to that same spot where he just caught this longer one and hopefully catch it when it's a little heavier. Why do you think that anglers get disappointed when they catch a big fall fish if it's enough fight to kind of convince them that they think they have a big trout on? Why would they be disappointed after having that good a fight? Uh, that is the million-dollar question. It's, <laughs> it's the same reason uh, largemouth angler gets upset when he catches a bowfin. Mm. I think it's just kind of a dated mindset, more or less, is what people are kind of clinging on to, you know, being disappointed that you're not catching what you're targeting instead of just enjoying what you have in hand. So, yeah. I think the most passionate folks we had on this season and guy, feel free to disagree with me, but I think it was the blue sucker fans. They were up there. They were, they were pretty excited. So we have a couple of clips from, from that episode and about suckers. This week, we're not going to be singing the blues, but we will be singing the praises of blues, blue suckers. That is. I thought this was funny. They actually called you out for being a sucker liker on one of our previous episodes. <laughs> well, is it a call out or is it a compliment? I'll, I'll take it as a compliment. And there's really something mysterious about this fish species. And blue suckers are kind of almost like a unicorn in the fisheries world where there's something really sacred about handling these fish and learning about these fish and the places that they live uh, that really puts things into perspective for you as a fish biologist. I think it was season one. Katrina and Guy, you guys were talking about just suckers. Yep. And Guy, sucker said you were, Guy said he was a sucker liker. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, it seems now like Guy's on lover. board. He's a Guy's sucker lover now. Guy's two into blue sucker, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, so Katrina, you present it. <laughs> I, I, it's a difference in how we see our mission on this podcast. I think Katrina sees this as a chance to get people really jazzed about the fish that are underappreciated. And that's a worthy goal. I see it as a chance to look just a across the range of fish that exist and talk about them with equal passion. So I'm not a particular sucker lover, but I love them just as much as I love the trout and the bass. And that's that's how I conceptualize it and, and my place I love in them. appreciating I love them the all. <laughs> I like them all equally. Obviously, I've talked. I, I have some favorites. In I the think you I'm not going to pretend favorites. I don't. But we're trying to... I, I see this show as trying to... I love my amblyphlites. <laughs> we'll talk about amblyphlites one of these days. The rock basses. Uh, I've caught all of them except the shadow bass this year. I've caught all of I've caught shadow bass before, but I've caught all of them except the shadow bass this year. And speaking of, we just talked about the the fall fish. I've caught all four somatolis except well, I've, so I've caught three of the four somatolis this year, with the exception of the Dixie chub. So <laughs> I might try and get I could get Dixie chub and shadow bass in Alabama. I'm gonna be driving to Texas for Christmas. So I might try and see if I can complete both of those sets in a year come these mm. holidays here. Good New Year's resolution. They mentioned how rare it was to catch small blue suckers. And also, as another side note, oh, off yeah. of a I tangent from the tangent, uh, I heard from some people that they were upset that they were all talking in millimeters and not inches. We're going to try to, we'll try to fix that. I'll try and do year. that. But they're saying anything below like 16, 17 inches is rare. And just like after we recorded that, I saw some pictures on Instagram from some people who caught some southeastern blue suckers that were really small, like it looked like in the 10 to 12 inch range. What they found was, again, they're talking about you can't 
they don't know where to find these things. The water was so low. It was like 10 feet lower or something Dang. than it usually was. And so they're able to electrofish these up. So there's a chance that the juvenile blue suckers are just using these deep water habitats where they're normally not accessible Sorry, yeah. to the shockers. So one milestone we hit this past year is we hit 100 episodes. Uh, Martha Williams, she's the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service. She was our, our special guest. So that was something really cool that happened. We covered 100 fish and granted some of those were some repeats, but very neat. Yeah. And we might have her on again one of these days. We'll see. Yep. So a theme we really wanted to carry from season one in Alaska into season two was elevating indigenous voices. And I really liked our visit to Hawaii this past year as an example of that. My name is Uncle Matt Poipoi and uh, I come from the island of Molokai in Hawaii. And I just here to talk story with you folks about Moi. I don't work with a microscope. I don't do genetics or any of this fancy stuff that they can do in a lab. My lab is right there, right in front of my eyes. And aloha, my name is Hi'ilei Cavello. I work at Hi'eia Fish Pond for a nonprofit that cares for the fish pond called Pai Pai O Hi'eia. And I live down the road, about five miles in the Ahupua'a of Kahalu'u. They had some really neat things to say about just how to care for Hawaii if you're going to go visit and if you're living there as well. The common message is always just take what you need. Don't overharvest because for Hawaii in particular, we depend on outside resources to feed our people. And we want to get away from that. We want to create our own food security. And this is part of it, learning about this. And um, hopefully people can, especially the young generation, can learn, learn this and um, not be greedy and take too much. Just be pono. Yeah, that's what we like to tell people. Be pono. Just to add to what Uncle Max said, yes, totally agree with what he just said. But also in addition, is, is about our freshwater, right? Like we live on islands that are very remote in the middle of the Pacific. And our ecosystems here in Hawaii are so fragile and extremely dependent on the rainfall that we get. And the nearshore fisheries and the estuaries surrounding our islands and even our pelagic fish are dependent on that same water. And that same water is our drinking water. And so our resources here are by no means infinite. Right? They're very much finite. And so I think the message to folks, especially all of you listeners out there, if you are visiting Hawaii, just be a, be a Pono visitor, be a good visitor. Embrace the culture here and the people here. So we thank you in advance. And we don't have enough time to highlight all the episodes featuring Indigenous folks, but another one we did want to bring light to again is the episode on Sicklefin Red Horse and the importance of Indigenous names. So here's a clip from that one. Yeah. So what's the, what's the Cherokee name for this particular fish? Ugi Dotli wears a feather, has a feather. We just recently had this word passed through the language consortium. So the consortium of fluent Cherokee speakers here. So it was a group that uh, evaluated some of the ideas for, for the name of this animal. So it's been known for a long time, but Cherokee is a descriptive language. So a lot like us scientists do, Cherokees have always described things around them. So it's a really easy way for us to communicate with the speakers, we found out, is to just talk like biologists and <laughs> describe it. And it's a, so it's, a, it's one of the few fish that has that dorsal fin that on top of it kind of looks like a feather. 
Oogie Dashley. Oogie Dashley. We're already getting people to say this. Yeah. You guys should practice it, by the way, right now. Say it one more time. Say it one more time for me. Dashley. Come on. Let's hear it. Oogie Dashley. Oogie Dashley? Okay. The the TLI at the end, you say with your tongue at the roof of your mouth. Clee. Oogie. Oogie Dashley. Perfect. Oogie Dashley. Oogie Dashley. Okay. I like it. All right. There's the name. Quit calling it uh, Superfin Red Horse now. Just call it Oogie Dashley. I love hearing the indigenous names for fish, and I really enjoyed Ernest recently up in Ukiavik who talked with us about broad whitefish. We call our broad whitefish in our language Anakluk. I don't know all the scientific terms of these whitefish, just our native language tongue. So you ask the kid around here, if they like broad whitefish, they probably wouldn't know what it is if, unless you say anaklikok. They'd be like, oh, yeah, I, I had that for dinner. I just finished reading a book by Mark Kurlansky, The Last Fish Tale. It's a story about Gloucester, Massachusetts, and sort of the history of the town, the rise and the fall of the fishing community there. And towards the end, he, he made this good point, which is something that I've sort of thought about for a while but never articulated well. And it's that we talk as scientists and researchers a lot about biodiversity, but we don't talk very much about sociodiversity and maintaining cultures and whether that's important and whether that's something that we should uh, do. Because really, when you think about like fishing techniques and things like that, a lot of times what we're thinking about is efficiency. And efficiency is not a friend of diversity. So, you know, getting a chance to preserve or at least to talk about some of these ways that people have developed relationships with these fish, wh- different ways to interact with these fish, I think is really cool and getting a chance to highlight not only the biodiversity of, of fish in this country, but also the sociodiversity of fisheries and how people interact with these species is really cool. I like what you just said there, Guy, and I really like the themes that we continue to hear, whether it's like, you know, climate change kind of related impacts or the cultural importance of these fish or barriers to fish migration. We're kind of hearing these rolling themes as we have these conversations with people all across the U.S. that we also heard in in season one. So it's been really neat. It's really fun to talk about fish, and it can be so funny. So we have some fun clips that we want to share, and the first one is uh, from our Delta Smelt episode. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Yero, here to remind y'all that truly, whoever smelt the Delta smelt dealt it. <laughs> Indeed. It wasn't that good. <laughs> so first things first, what do these fish smell like? Yes. Delta smelt have a pretty interesting smell and they smell like cucumbers. So sometimes when you get close enough, you get that whiff, you feel like you're at a spa and you're like, oh, there might be a Delta smelt in this net. Awesome. So we we learned that fish can have a certain smell. Um, We also learned that fish can make sounds. We've got a clip from our red drum episode. Are you able to make the red drum sound like you've heard them? Can you make the sound that they make? Oh, wow. (laughs) I, I wish you'd told me to practice this, Katrina. So I'm, I'm going to try to close my eyes and think back to, you know, hearing one drum right under my boat. So okay. I'm sure this is going to be a terrible failure, but I'm going to try anyway, just to be silly. But... <clears throat> but, it, yeah. but it's much more, it's much more percuss, percussive than that. I don't, I don't have the, 
You know, I don't have that swim bladder that I can slam my diaphragm up against, you know, to make that percussive sound. Cause it really does. It would literally loud. the oh. bottom of the boat would tremble. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And then another fun thing is always guys stories. So we've got a, a, a funny fishing story for you too. And I finally hooked into my first chain pickerel. It was awesome. I was bringing it in and then it jumped as the chain pickerels are apt to do. Mm-hmm. And it just threw my lure and, you know, I, I got to see it, that big profile just against the sky, and it broke my heart. And I, I can get frustrated <laughs> when things like that happen. I've had times where I throw my rod, I'll take my shirt off and storm off in a huff, and that's just kind of me. And so you I You, like, I was, rip it I off was, like a wrestler? Or what? <laughs> no, I'm not that strong. I got these little twiggy bird arms, but I'm able to take it off like a normal person and stomp around. I think that was dramatized a little bit. <laughs> Slightly embellished. It did jump. It was probably a profile against the, the sky, tree line rather yeah, than against yeah, yeah, the sky. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I've caught lots of chain pickerel and they do jump a lot. I've caught a whole lot down on like the Sewanee River and like the Withlacoochee River down South Georgia too, where, you know, they do like to jump. But I, I'm surprised that he chose that story to include. I, I personally like my stone roller story better, but that's Ooh, just me. Remind me of your stone roller story. I can't remember that one. The stone rollers is where I was out there in sort of north central Arkansas. And you can just see all these fish. And I think oh, I, I can. Oh, that's right. Like yeah. the starry night. Yeah. No. Yep. That's, I, I think that's a better story. Roll clip. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that one prepared for you guys, but go back and listen to the stone roller episode. <laughs> Guy and I like to help each other out and hopefully the listeners as well as we do that. Like he makes sure I'm staying up on my ichthyology terms from long ago and I make sure he understands units of measure. So we have a few examples of that. It's kind of fun. And small pike are sometimes called a hammer handle. And when you're holding a pickerel in your hands, it would just be like holding a small pike. So yeah, that's how I would describe it. Would you have anything else to add about it? Yeah, so you mentioned the back set fins. There's a word I want to throw out here for you, Katrina. Sagittiform. Does that ring any bells? <laughs> it does. Take it you back some to, bells to from ichthyology class. Yep. Yeah, sagittiform is one of the classic. You, you have these shapes that fish generally fall into. Now, every time you make one of these categories, you're going to find tons of fish that don't fit into any of them. But <laughs> sagittiform actually comes. It's from the Latin or Greek for arrow. And there is no species or group of fishes out there that fit this definition of a body type better than these pikes and pickerels. You know, we talk about sagittiform there, and, you know, lots of the guests uh, earlier we had them talking about the elysium and the esca, those cool structures on the football fish. We talked about the ampullae of Lorenzini, both in the goblin shark episode as well as uh, old Wayne. He mentioned it when we were talking about pound sturgeon. Uh, the gonopodium on oh, mosquito yeah. fish, the nuchal hump on the Texas cichlids. <laughs> so we, we throw in a little bit of terminology Nuptial here and there. tubercles. Nuptial tubercles. Yep. yep. So we've gotten some feedback from y'all about millimeters. And I think scientists tend to talk in units of measure that are hard to kind of bring to mind. So we've been trying to have a little bit of fun with length and weight as we can. And we can do this more if you guys like. But here's a couple examples. In terms of size, I looked up some stats and I just wanted to run 
through these quickly to give folks an idea how big you asked me like what it's like to hold one of these in your hand if you had a pike in the united states the biggest pike caught was a 46 pounder that was caught in new york bigger than my son ragnar and for you guy that's about as big as a 50 pound kettlebell thought i'd throw another weight for you there (laughs) 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 or one of those round weights 50 pounder Got a link. You know how to push my buttons. <laughs> 14 big school buses and 27 short buses, six or seven blue whales, 108 guys, assuming you're around six feet tall, and 138 Simone Biles. So that's pretty far. Okay. So that's, <laughs> there you go. That's fun fact number one. That's as far as a flying fish can fly, or I should say glide. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a few episodes where you've been in your car and like have almost overheated. Yeah. So I think some of them, I mean, I don't know if you're... That was yeah. one. Goldfish, <laughs> I think, was one. <laughs> Let's see. That was one. The The <laughs> flying fish one definitely was one. The uh, w- When we did Ray Troll, I was out of it for Ray Troll when oh, we were doing yeah, Lump were. Suckers. I was outside of Manhattan, Kansas in my trailer just sweating up a storm. That was awful. I did. I, I had the AC on in my car for the goldfish one, and I actually killed my battery in the car. Luckily, old Cajun Jay was around, able to give me a jump start. So the red that drum was good. drummer. Yep. Yeah, yeah. he was from the Red Drum episode. We were out shooting some stuff with the DNR on the river, shooting some brown trout. They're electrofishing for brown trout and stuff. That was a good time. I know from a recording standpoint, I don't go nearly as many places as Guy does. I usually record here in Anchorage. I've been recording in Hawaii. So I had some chickens outside the car once. And then I was in California when we recorded the Pacific football fish, which I thought was cool. But I think Guy, by far, he's just all over the place and has some really interesting experiences in his car recording. Yeah, I, I bop around a lot. I did get off the road. I wasn't living in the trailer most of the time this year. Uh, so I recorded a lot in North Carolina, a lot down in Georgia now, but also along the road, California, Arkansas, Kansas, Texas, the flying fish episode where it was so hot in the trailer. That was actually up in Vermont. Uh, I was in a park right along the Battenkill river. So yeah, lots of places. So let's shift gears a little bit. We've talked about the past two seasons. We're very excited about the future season coming up, season three. And yeah, we wanted to give y'all a little bit of insight into what to expect, how we came up with our list. Um, If you guys haven't discovered already, Guy is a big fish nerd in a great way. He has an incredible spreadsheet that he helps really inform our, our choices. So I have my own kind of way of thinking about what fish to feature. And it's a mix of like what we think people are going to be interested in and just, you know, it's a little bit less formal, but he has a really amazing spreadsheet that really (laughs) highlights how diverse fish are. I mean, we're talking, how many fish are there in the world? There's like 30,000 or something. uh, Excuse me. They keep finding more. Um, And, you know, it's estimated somewhere around 33,000. Yeah. That's Uh, what I thought. We have to like, be very thoughtful with how we pick these fish because we don't want to give one, you know, family or order too much love. We're kind of trying to spread it out so you guys get a feel for all the fish. But maybe, Guy, you could tell me a little bit about your spreadsheet and what you got in there. We're trying to look along lots of dimensions, looking at fishes that are big and small, 
mostly freshwater. There's only like somewhere around like 800 species of North American freshwater fishes. Yeah. So we're not pulling necessarily from that whole 33,000, but every once in a while we get to do a cool international fish or get to do camps. a cool marine fish. I basically kind of went through like the Peterson guide and pulled out what was there and try and have a, a balance. Don't have too many sport fishes in a row. Don't have too many micro fishes in a row. You also try and get fishes from different geographies you don't want to just keep doing fish in the pacific northwest you want to bounce around to the yeah (laughs) i guess that's what i should really be concerned (laughs) about is doing too many georgia fishes uh not too many oregon (laughs) fishes we try and bounce around everywhere different habitat types different trophic levels and just just try and cover the whole range and that's how i see it so i also break it down by you know the order and the family and the genus of the fish that we're talking about to make sure that they were getting good representation across the phylogenetics of these fish. And I, I noticed one thing between these first two seasons, uh, formies and particularly <laughs> the genus Fungulus has really, we, we've just ignored <laughs> them blatantly. And so I know in this upcoming season, we're going to try and do at least a couple Fungulus. And definitely, I, I think we've planned for like four or five different Cybrenodontiform fishes because I don't think we did any this year. We did devil's hole pupfish towards the end of season one but we, we need to get some fungulus in there well no a- actually we did do gambusia now that i think about it, which is a cyprinodontiform fish this year but we still haven't done anything within the family fungulidae which is the most speciose family for which we have yet to cover a species so far there's some shiner genre that you know, like Cyprinella, for instance. Notropus just got busted up into a whole lots of different things, so we'll have to re-explore mm-hmm. that at some point. But I, I think we uh, we haven't gotten quite to Cyprinella yet. At some point, that's got a lot of fish in it. We also, we got to do, even though there's not a ton in the U.S., we, we got to do the gobies. We got to maybe do some more cichlids, some more catfishes. Catfishes are kind of underrepresented. And now, granted, we're, we're always going to be underrepresented in terms of, like, Persiformes, uh, and particularly, you know, your Ethiostoma is and Persina genre, because those those are the darters. But we can't just do too many darters. But nah. we'll, we'll try and you know give them their due. So we got this spreadsheet that informs our choices. Guy mentioned like sports it's very fish. analytical. We got rough fish. We got non-game fish. We have fish that are really important culturally, um, like eating fish, subsistence species. So there's a lot that goes into this. So it actually took us. A long time to come up with this list. We've got about 50 fish identified with a few TBDs, and we're happy to take some ideas from folks listening. But I guess after we we chatted, we argued about some stuff, and then we kind of had a draft, right, where we did like you picked a fish and I agreed or not. I think how it went, if I remember correctly, <laughs> was we, we both came up with our ideal like yeah. year long list, and we, we yeah. left like some wiggle room. I left about 20. I think I picked about 35 fish or something. And Something like that. I, I think I picked more than that. But yeah, you did. <laughs> then, then we compared the list. Everything that was in common, we just said, okay, yes. And then there is something like 10 or 15 spots left over. And then we did a, a sort of draft system where we just picked the ones that we wanted and, and yeah. snuck them in there. And we left some wiggle room. From a fish and wildlife standpoint, I tried to pick ones that we're working on as an agency, ones that have projects we're doing for example, like fish passage projects that are benefiting certain species. So there's a little bit of that in there as well. But I think we got a really we got cool, an awesome list. I mean, an we'll awesome see. List. 
part of it comes down to we also need to like find guests for some of these and sometimes yep. that doesn't work out and we got to insert someone in or sometimes we just find a really enthusiastic guest that wants to talk about something cool through one of some other project that we're working on and we so we find some way to move things around so that we can yeah. just talk to them so it isn't hard and fast like ah this is exactly what we're doing we even just last night we're katrina and i were talking like oh we need to find someone for this january so what fish do you want to do she basically we, we got it down to we we're going to do gulper eels or opa and opa. i i made a good case for the opa <laughs> and uh so i think we found we got you know the first wholly endothermic fish species ever uh described as such uh, so yeah. we're gonna get some of the guys from that paper on to talk so that'll be fun what uh, what fish are you most looking forward to guy you got like your number <sighs> one pick here I think Sacramento perch, that's one that we're going to try and do. I think that one's really interesting because it's the only Centrarchid native west of the Rocky Mountains, which is really weird. Amazon molly, fully only female species. That's going to be really cool. Obviously, paddlefish, Mexican tetra, those are going to be fun. Oh, common carp. I'm looking forward to common oh, carp. Oh, yeah, you've been talking about carp for guy wants to do that real bad. I want to do it as like a celebratory carp episode where, you know, we trash carp like in tons of episodes. We did it in this goldfish episode. We've done it in the sucker episodes. <laughs> and, you know, to be fair, so we talked about it in the June sucker episode where they're really kind of messing with the habitat and they are an introduced species. But, you know, we got to give carp some love, too. So I think doing a, a carp love episode. Have a nice, well-balanced carp episode. I'm yeah. excited about Goliath grouper. I, every time I see a picture of one of those fish next to a human and how big they are, it's just I'm like, oh, my gosh. That'll be a good one. That'll be a That's good one. That's so cool. I, I'm big into not just the fish themselves. Of course, obviously, I, I love just the fish too. But talking about actual, like, real complex fisheries issues. So I think it'd be cool to maybe try and talk about Red Snapper. They finished up that Red Snapper count a few years ago. And so getting to talk about what that was all about and how maybe that's affected management of this really heavily managed species, super controversial species in terms of the management. Then also I got my eyes on maybe trying to get some people to talk about Northeastern seafood stuff. So I, I think looking at like the human connection stuff a little bit more, we'll have some opportunity to do that. I'm excited yeah. to try and talk about those. You didn't, you didn't really fully answer my question. I said your favorite one, not your top like 15. Arapaima. How about that? <laughs> okay. That one's <laughs> on my list too. And Atlantic cod, you mentioned Kurlansky and his cod book, but that's just a really neat fish coming from Maine and like cod and that whole history. If anyone out there knows Mark Kurlansky, uh, send us his contact info. We talk about how we pick our fish list. Our guests are also really important. We try to really pull from a, a big diversity of different voices and perspectives. And I, I do want to pitch out that I'd really like The Rock. So Dwayne Johnson, if you want to come talk about bass with us, we'd love to have you. Um, okay, I guess we'll wrap this up. So we had a listener ask if we wanted to elect a fish of the year. And I, I think Guy and I probably both agree that we'd like to elect the blue sucker. Yeah, I, I think let, let's do blue sucker. Yep. Just snap judgment. Uh, we haven't really given them a chance to work it out, fight it out, and given it a proper election, but we're just going to appoint uh, Blue Sucker, I the think. The musky of the catastomids. <laughs> the, what, I can't remember all the, the cool terms we gave it, but we can yeah. probably hit that one. Tons of superlatives. Yeah. Blue Sucker, fish of 2022. Okay. Well, we're really excited to do another season with you guys and really honored to get to bring our passion for fish and fish conservation to you. And we hope you like the journey with us and get out there and enjoy all the fish. 
Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. There are some people who are inquiring if there's any new fish that made my uh, life list this year, so I'll just run through those real quick. White sucker, northern hog sucker, golden red horse, big mouth chub, bull chub, silver striped shiner, wedge spot shiner, big eye shiner, carmine shiner, weed shiner, white fin, white tail, steel color, red, crescent white, dusky stripe, cardinal, pine woods, shiners, <laughs> sandhills chub, ozark chub, southern red belly day, central stone roller, sacramento pike minnow, california roach, speckled killifish, black stripe and black spotted top minnows, roanoke and ozark basses, of the rock basses bantam sunfish uh brook silverside and golden silverside and atlantic salmon and a log perch in addition to these fishes that i didn't catch last year uh an american shad and a river chub and then some cool new subspecies caught the california golden trout up in the high sierras as well as the neosho bass out there in arkansas and i also caught a pretty cool hybrid between a bluegill and a green sunfish